This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Since today is my 23rd wedding anniversary, it... Yeah, thank you. Uh, I, I can't help but have that sort of merge in. So, I mean, it's part of my life. I always preach out of my life. I remember someone getting upset with me because all my blogs, I, I was doing these moody podcasts, or these, there was actually a moody radio show. It turned into a moody podcast, but it was a moody radio show. And the leaders of the, you know, the people that organized that wanted me to have less personal stuff. They didn't want me talking about my kids. They wanted me talking about current events. And I said, sorry. I don't care about current events. I care about what's going on in my home. That's where I learn. And that's how I apply. That's how I live my life. And then I had someone, you know, that was really upset with me. And they said, all you seem to want to talk about is, you know, what's going on in your life. And it's like, I don't know if anyone else has ever tried writing or speaking, but it's very difficult to talk about what's going on in someone else's life. This is where we live. We live here and it flows out. We make decisions in this vessel, and it overflows onto others. I can only give personal testimony. I can, I can borrow someone's testimony, and you know, I can exhort people with stories. I love biographies, and I love the stories of the greats. However, I really want to see something formed here and then have it overflow. And so today is, a, a, I'm just going to get into it, and I think I'll try and explain it as we go. Barracks 29. Uh, the number 29 is very significant in my life, and uh, if any of you have hung out, you have to be at a certain level of closeness to my life to know this, but my marriage has a name to it, and it's called Barracks 28. And so this, which sounds really odd, and I'll explain it as we progress, but the subtitle is very fitting, Understand the Exquisite Benefits of Embracing Difficulty. Now, we can swap that out for suffering, and we're not going to lose anything in there. Obviously, I had that as a placeholder. However, I chose this term of embracing difficulty more purposely because your mental picture of suffering usually puts you in a concentration camp. It usually puts you under a rack or hanging on a cross, and as a result, you don't recognize that suffering and the understanding of suffering is found almost in every day. However, we don't embrace it. We have a tendency to shy away from it. And if you come from a North American culture, you go to great lengths to have other people carry weights for you so that you don't have to carry them. You go to great lengths to anesthetize pain so that you will not feel it. And as a result, you never gain the benefit of it. Uh, So we're going to go through a little tour of 23 years. This is very short, but uh, my kids don't even know this. This Kids, did you guys see that? Look at that. I could not, I was, I was up, I didn't want Leslie to know, because Leslie's streaming this right now, and so this, this message, by the way, is dedicated to Leslie, and it's sort of hard for me not to also dedicate it to Ezekiel Vogel, too, because when you understand uh, the Vogel's heart and their passion for their kids, you'll understand Barracks 29 fits that very well, so that's another bond that uh, Aaron and I now have. He has a child named Ezekiel born on the same day that I was married, so 
but 23 years ago today, that was all happening. And then, uh, boy, I don't know what happens when you stick a face up on the screen. Looks like I have an extremely <laughs> dark tan. Uh, but I, I just skipped around eight or nine years. There's a lot that happened in those eight or nine years. But one thing I, I am just showing you is that, see, I look the same, you know, even after eight years. So this is before kids. When kids came along, uh, then suddenly Eric will start to age a little quicker. But uh, I, I went through this stuff so quick this morning because I didn't want Leslie to see that I was trying to find pictures, and she was the one that knew where they all were. So I literally I got our, our wedding pictures from our album and took a picture with my iPhone and then got them here. I couldn't find any of our old pictures. Uh, and then so there's Harper. Now, so now we have Hudson and Harper, and we're with Eeyore, who is definitely part of the family if you ask Harper. <laughs> and then now this is important because uh, that's Bex, who's a very dear part of our life, but she's pregnant with someone, and that is little Kipling. And Kipling is uh, just about to enter into our family. And now you see little Kipling uh, thrown in. And then Avi is added. And so there we are. We're right near some uh, uh, crocodile. What do you have in Florida? Is it crocodiles or alligators? Or is it both? Crocodiles? So we were right near some crocodiles we didn't realize. But so we were happy at that moment. And then we have uh, the ever-growing family, and you'll see that years are passing, and we're still just four kids, and yet you may know us as having six kids. And so finally, uh, Reese and Lily come home, and uh, that's still a young picture. I mean, look at Hudson. I mean, that's the way he's supposed to be. Instead, he shot up and turned all old on us. Uh, But uh, it's been truly an amazing 23 years, and yet... Uh, the whole point of what I want to share with you, there's a reason why my marriage is called Barracks 28. And at, on our 20th anniversary, three years ago today, my gift to Leslie was a book, and it was called Barracks 28. And uh, I think, well, that's coming up. I'll, I'll get into that. But Barracks 28 is, doesn't sound like a positive title. Uh, I mean, that is actually a real name of a barracks in Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. And there's a reason why we name our marriage that, even though I know to some of you you're thinking, excuse me, that doesn't sound very romantic. To Leslie and I, it's the language of our life, and out of it has flowed such exquisite beauty and wonder. Uh, So in your notes now, you can sort of follow along, but a tale of two churches, which one is doing that which is right? So I have two pictures. I used to always just describe this, and I would never actually have the pictures. So this time I tried to do the pictures. I saw them in the notes. They didn't translate to the notes very well. And I don't know if they translate up here very well either. But if you were to look at these two uh, pictures of these two churches, and I I were to say, which one is doing it right? The instinct that every one of us as humans has is to say the one that is so blessed, that is blessed with peace. Look at the flowers. I mean, it's like in a field of uh, daffodils. What are those things? Daisies, you could say. I I don't know flowers very well. I would recognize a rose, okay, and and a lily. Uh, But look at that. I even like made a little shine of ooh around it. I mean, this is like great. And then look at the other one. Ooh. Oh, there's like a demon on top, too, if you see it. It's like, wow, this is sort of scary. I was even scared a little when I put that demon up there. It's like, ah. <laughs> and yet one of the things that I've always taught is that our instinct in this is actually wrong. You see, the devil is going to spend his best energies against that which is posing a threat to his kingdom. 
And so as a result, which one is doing it right? I know it sounds strange. However, it's not that we wish a demonic attack on our life. I'm just saying that if you stand boldly for Jesus Christ in a generation, you're going to get your share of flack. The devil is going to put you on his most wanted list. And as a result, there will be difficulty in your life that is beyond normal human difficulty. All of us have difficulty in our life. We're humans. We're in an earth, earthen state, an earthen situation, which is full and marked by weeds and the effects of sin. In other words, we have difficulty. We're alive. But when you choose to walk a narrow way, you literally sign up for even a greater measure of difficulty. It's called a narrow way. A narrow way, a narrow meaning a way of difficulty and compression. There's a broad way over here, and it's wide. And it's, I'm not saying you can't struggle on the broad way. I'm just saying there's a lot less difficulty. So, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. So, beloved's a perfect word for today. And, a, you know, 23rd wedding anniversary, just start out the scripture with beloved. Leslie, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Bride of Christ, church of Jesus Christ, do not consider it strange. You see, you're Christians. You're clothed in the person of Jesus Christ. You are directly set against the prince of the power of the air, the systems of this earth. You are against them because you are with him. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened, and you know. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You see, this isn't like an optional version of Christianity. This is all who would live godly in Christ Jesus. What's your position? So when you choose to live godly, or as God would have you live, in Christ Jesus, hey, it comes with the territory. It's not a negative. There's no reason to consider it a negative. As far as I'm concerned, it's a compliment. You know, Aaron Vogel, who just had Ezekiel Vogel today, uh, oh, and Robbie Webb, who was up here leading worship. So I get trained by these guys. Now it's three times a week. And they don't seem to show much mercy. In fact, I even wonder if Robbie walks by me and studies me specifically to, say, you know, to correct my form and to make it difficult. Like, yeah, give him a heavier weight. And yet, I shouldn't look at those weights as negatives, but as opportunities to get stronger. Why do I keep coming back? Because I know the benefits that come out of that difficulty. Exercise is difficulty. However, in most of our minds, well, some of you, you're thinking, oh, negative, I can't stand exercise. However, like for me, I have a very positive lens for exercise. I do. I love exercise, even though at the end when I'm like feeling nauseous and I'm barely able to drive home, I'm blacking out as I'm driving home, you're like, how are you feeling now, Eric? Even then, I'm like, it's working. It's working. <laughs> you see, I love the difficulty of exercise because I see the context of it. I see what it's doing inside of me. When we face trials and tribulations, persecutions and difficulties in this life, do we recognize that this is a grand weight room? This is like one big in-the-core workout. And we are in Christ learning to exercise godliness. And as we do, every bit of weight that comes against us, every bit of struggle, everything that we have to resist actually works to the strengthening of our life. 
The church that seeks to avoid persecution and the one that embraces it. There are two. Like all other things, there seems to be two. There's one, of, there's one version of the church or even of Christian living that wants to escape difficulty. And there's another version of Christianity that smiles at it, that doesn't try and escape it. You see, for most of us, I would say, we know that God works all things to good. We know that, that he converts the devil's business, he converts challenges. We know that intellectually. But we still don't smile at it. And I'm here to tell you, I think we should transfer completely over into the kingdom mentality and start to smile at it. So Jess Schwartz just finished up this because we're in our Christmas kickstart this time of year, and one of the gifts that we're giving to people that are donating to our ministry is this book. This book is not anywhere. So uh, it's been given out in a, I think last year we gave it out in a similar type of situation. So I'm going to introduce you to some of the content in this. I think I, I read some of it to our summer semester, but it's very rare for me to share any of this in a normal fashion. But so here's the title, Barracks 28, The Couple Crazy Enough to Still Hope. And then you see some barbed wire and a little Jewish uh, uh, Star of David there. And it doesn't necessarily probably make you feel warm and cuddly and uh, romantic. And then at the end it says, or the little box is the 20-year retrospect of my extraordinary marriage. If, that, if you had a heart of barbed wire, would you consider that an extraordinary marriage? I'm here to tell you that I wouldn't trade place with any other man on earth. I would not swap out my marriage for any other. Has it come with extreme difficulty? Oh, yeah. And yet, heaven on earth. So what I want to do in this, because here's the reason I chose to do this. We have this revival, this recalibration, whichever word you would choose out of it, that God is moving in our hearts to refine and to recalibrate us to his way of doing things. And then we have the 23rd wedding anniversary of Eric Ludi as I'm preaching. I cannot ignore it. To me, this is like where I live today. I am cherishing my wife today. I'm cherishing what has come of that, which we're going to refer to as Barracks 29. In other words, it's that which flows out. It's that which it bears fruits of. And so in my life, here's, here's what I'm going to say. Like back in, uh, I think it was 2001, September 11th, 2001. Did you guys, some of you weren't alive. But September 11th, 2001, I think that was the date. Was that the date of the two towers falling? Okay. Uh, and one of the things that happened in that day, when there was difficulty that swept across our nation, is it drove people into a deep level of appreciation for the ones that they loved and the ones that were part of their family. And as far as I'm concerned as Christians, we should live that way, in a constant communion, one with the other, cherishing what we have. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do some exercising here of that part of our soul. And I'm going to do it personally, but as I'm going through it, I want you to cherish what God has given you. Because God has given you a family. God has given you a body of Christ. God has given you blessing. But oftentimes we're blurred in seeing it because we are distracted with trials and tribulations. But if we handle those trials and tribulations right, it actually strengthens our appreciation of family. And so that's why I'm going to exercise this today. Because as far as I'm concerned, if we're going to grow up as a body, the primary attribute that begins to show in our life, if the Holy Spirit has full access to us, is our love for one another. 
our deep affection and appreciation for one another. So this is, I'm going to actually do an audio book for you. So in, in Ellerslie's, uh, well, I'm sorry, in Eric and Leslie's world, we do audio books all the time. So we have audio book time every night. And right now we're going through Tramp for the Lord uh, for the umpteenth time. I love that book by Corey Tenboom. And we go through the same books over and over again. I don't know what our, our, our list is, but it's somewhere around 40 books that we just go over and over and over again. They're all biographies, these great stories of men and women of the faith. And so sometimes, like right now, we're also reading the greatest, no, the, world, the greatest Christmas pageant ever. Is that what it's called? Or the worst Christmas pageant ever. I don't remember what that's called. Uh, I mean, that's a classic. So it's that time of year. And so daddy gets up and it walks around. Actually, we tried it in audiobook. We did the first chapter in audiobook and all my kids went on strike. They're like, we want daddy. We want daddy. So now daddy's reading it. Okay, so my kids like it when I read. I'm not sure how you're going to respond to it. Okay, but this is going to be an audiobook version of not the whole thing, the very first few chapters of Barracks 28. A word before. I wanted to give you a peek inside Barracks 28. Forgive me up front for the brevity of the tour. One of the privileges of living in Barracks 28 is that I am kept surprisingly busy. And so unfortunately for this book, I don't have much time for being a tour guide. Just a little FYI, Barracks 28 is the name of Leslie's and my marriage, which today I'm thrilled to announce has just turned 20 years old. Obviously, this was three years ago. So I wanted to celebrate by having an open house. No, we don't actually live in the Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. That is a common misunderstanding, since that is where the original Barracks 28 was. So I can understand your confusion on that point. Again, Barracks 28 is the name of our marriage. It's not the name of our hometown. You will quickly notice how snug this Barracks is. You are certain to think that all those memories cannot possibly fit into our 20 short years together. But alas, they have. It's tight quarters for all of our many adventures, but though sometimes it is difficult to find a bunk for our next major event to sleep on, we love the intimacy that the smallness of the room affords. Before we enter, there are a few things that are important to understand about Barracks 28 prior to stepping foot inside it. For many, a great love story would be described as a peaceful hermit's cottage hidden in the veil of ease and comfort and wholly untouched by the struggles and battles of this life. And whereas I agree that such a love story would be outwardly appealing, it would be missing something. It would be missing the one necessary ingredient that makes love stories grand. And that one ingredient, though it is often deemed the enemy of romance, is in fact the great advocate of it. Difficulty. Leslie and I have had more difficulty in 20 years than most marriages would have in 20 lifetimes. And as a result, we are possibly the happiest couple on earth. You see, difficulty is not the damper to beauty, but the catalyst to it. Like the torrential winds that make the oak tree strong or the heat and the pressure that make the diamond shine, difficulty is the great gift to a marriage. Its fragrance is not of the Bath and Body Works variety. And though it is an acquired taste, it is the most supremely delicious odor to the soul, especially when that soul chooses to welcome it instead of run from it. Leslie and I do not live in a peaceful hermit's cottage, but that isn't to say our life isn't marked by an extraordinary peace. We don't live hidden in the veil of ease and comfort, but that isn't to say that our life isn't marked by the most divine heavenly comfort. And no, we don't have a marriage untouched by the struggles and battles of this life, and yet I wouldn't trade places with one other man in all of world history. I don't want a cozy romantic hideaway. I want Barracks 28. What you're about to see is precious to me and Leslie. It is our life. For a couple that is always smiling, always laughing, and always singing, I realize you may have expected something quite different than a barracks. There may be a bit of an acclimation period for your souls as you enter. I mean, it's Eric and Leslie Ludi, the authors of When God Writes Your Love Story and When Dreams Come True. You expected flowers, rhymes, and the endless whisperings of sweet nothings. 
and you probably didn't expect some Barracks 28. How can we, you ask, name our love story Barracks 28? When you step into our humble abode, you will see why we call it Barracks 28. We actually live in a war zone. We, the Looty Lovebirds, are, well, how do I say this? We are <clears throat> not liked by everyone. For those of you who are fond of us, you may not understand this. After all, we are so nice, so smiley, and so kind. But Leslie and I constantly hear the cacophony of threats, jeers, and taunts outside. Over the years, false accusation has been spray-painted on our marriage like graffiti and betrayals have shaken our little abode like bomb blasts. Now, please don't think that this is some plea for pity. There is no need for pity. We love our life. This is the very stuff that has made our love story so amazing. We love our cozy marriage in the midst of all this danger. We cherish our Barracks 28. Less than I love the stories of the suffering Christians before us. Wormbrand in Romania, Dibler in Indonesia, the Ten Booms in Holland are some of our favorites. We have read and reread these stories and hundreds like them. We cherish the triumph that flows out of difficulty when Christ supplies the grace. Less than I have a special spot in our heart for Betsy and Corey Ten Boom. Their story, though it may not be the most dramatic of all the amazing tales, to us has been probably the most endearing. Leslie and I named our marriage after the Ten Boom's actual home during World War II, for they really did live in Barracks 28 at the actual Ravensburg concentration camp in Nazi Germany. It was in this death camp that over 900,000 women were ruthlessly killed. And it was in this place of difficulty that Betsy and Corey demonstrated to Leslie and me how to transform the challenges of life into the true strength and beauty of life. Ravensbrück was a place of despair for tens of thousands of women who had nothing to hope for in life but a miserable death. But it was said that Barracks 28 was the place crazy enough to still hope. That simple statement means so much to us, the place crazy enough to still hope. In the midst of a generation where the heavenly beauty of married love is nearly lost, Leslie and I desire to be known as that couple crazy enough to still hope. This is not just a short tour of our last 20 years, but it is a tribute to the one who has shared this beautiful battle-worn barracks alongside me. I wrote this for Leslie, my love, my bride, my companion, my dearest friend, my confidant, my constant encourager, my girl. Corey Tenboom was not alone in barracks 28. God gave her Betsy. Leslie, you have been my Betsy. The reward of suffering. I almost called this message the reward of suffering because that is what God gives. When we are willing to suffer for his namesake, when we are willing to endure those persecutions, those winds that blow against us, out of our obedience for him, there is something that he promises. It is a reward. The scriptural term for it is not reward, but it is. It's consolation. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation, so if you want to replace out reward for that, it would be accurate, okay? It is something that God is supplying, and it isn't an equal measure to the difficulty. It is an abundant measure beyond any difficulty we have. So in other words, when you suffer loss or difficulty, you receive something in its place that far surpasses what you're losing. Yeah, you're losing sleep at night. You get a consolation that far outweighs that. Yeah, you know, your, your reputation just got shot. Yeah, but you get something even greater. I remember uh, Jackie Pollinger coming back from the walled city of Hong Kong, coming to America and saying, you may have your own bed, but I know God's grace. As if she was saying, I have the consolation of God. What do you have? You have your own bed? In other words, 
Those that suffer difficulty, those that actually walk through trial and challenge, get something beyond what those that don't have the trial and challenge have. Someone could sleep in and miss the workout in the morning. Yeah, and they don't have the nauseous stomach, and they're not driving back blacking out from the workout. But guess what? I have something they don't. I've gained strength that they wouldn't have. I've gained endurance in my life that they cannot touch because I was willing to go through an in-the-core workout. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted. It is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so shall you also of the consolation. So Paul's saying, hey, I've tasted the reward, and I've been given this you, when I suffer, you actually get advantage in it. But you're learning a model because when you suffer, you're going to find that you will receive this consolation as well. Consolation, the reward of suffering, the amazingly deep and profound blessing and comfort supplied to the soul by the fellowship of his sufferings. When we enter into suffering, we enter into a fellowship with Jesus Christ. And it's interesting. Any of you that have ever tasted this, your intimacy with Jesus Christ skyrockets when you share in the fellowship of his sufferings. When you're willing to go through difficulty because you are obedient to him, it is amazing how that sponsors your love relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, that's how it works in marriage, too. The fleas. This is like chapter one. It's a great way to start a marriage, isn't it? Fleas. When Corey and Betsy first arrived in Barracks 28, they found that it was infested with fleas. Not only was it the famed death camp, but it was the famed death camp with millions of fleas flourishing in their very barracks. Betsy took Corey by the hand and softly asked Corey to thank God with her for Barracks 28. Corey at first balked. To thank God in such circumstances seemed impossible, but they began to thank God for everything that he had done. They had each other. They had miraculously been able to steal in Corey's Bible. They had a bunk together. They were still alive. Then Betsy thanked God for the fleas, but Corey could not join in that prayer. She refused to thank God for fleas. But Betsy pled with her to remember how God can take everything and use it in our lives for his good. And then after a bit of pondering, Corey finally complied and thanked God for the fleas. Leslie and I were married three weeks when the same test came our way. We had each other. We had the word of God. We had a bunk together. We were very much alive. But what do we do with these fleas? I had spied out an amazing house in a gorgeous lake in Michigan. It was used as a bed and breakfast during the summer months, and so during its off-season, a young couple like ourselves could actually rent it out. It's a great situation, but there was one problem. It wasn't really winterized. We arrived in early January of 1995, straight from our honeymoon. We were flying high and desperately in love, and right around our arrival date at the lakeside lodge, someone else moved in. I guess they didn't realize that a newly married couple typically prefers a bit of privacy. There were seven bedrooms in the place, but they didn't take one of the bedrooms. They moved into the fireplace. It was a family of raccoons, and come to find out, 98% of all fleas that survived through the winter survived by living symbiotically with raccoons. Whether that is true or not, it sure did explain our flea infestation. If you walked across the wood floor of the vast living room in white socks at any given time, you could count 17 fleas on your right sock alone. We had fleas, thousands upon thousands of them. We had raccoons beating against a piece of plywood that covered the fireplace. We had negative temperatures for weeks on end, and we had fun. Now, I need to admit that we approached the fleas at first more like Corey than like Betsy. It took us a bit to thank God for the gift of those fleas. 
Corey and Betsy found that it was because of the fleas that the German officers left Barracks 28 alone, which allowed them to hold nightly Bible studies without threat of danger. It was the fleas that protected this sacred time of fellowship every night. For Leslie and I, we found the fleas supplied us our very first trial. And after 20 years, that first trial is still very precious to us. It taught us how to work together through difficulty. It taught us how to thank God in all circumstances. And it taught us how to laugh together. Leslie, our love was so innocent back then. We didn't know what challenges lay around the corner. And it was a good thing. For we didn't care about what was to come. We knew we had each other. And we had Jesus. And Leslie, I'll never forget discovering your spunk in that time. You were a fighter. Through all our adventures, you have never stopped swinging your sword. And oh, how I cherish your resolve to see Jesus come out on top in each and every circumstance. Dear Lord, thank you for those fleas. The lack. Now, it's interesting because the part of our story that I am reading to you is pathetically easy in hindsight. But that's because of what God has worked in me now. But at the time, it's sort of like if you first put on skis and you went to a ski slope. A bunny hill is enough to cause you to go home. I and mean, that's some tough stuff. I mean, you ever seen this? I mean, it's like three feet off the ground. You're going, oh, and you go into the, the drift off to the side. It's scary. Then getting on one of those uh, ski lifts. Whoa, have you ever gotten off your first ski lift? I think there are people that should just plant cameras by the ski lift on greens just to watch people, oh, crash into someone. It's really funny. When you're first starting in anything, just being on skis is the same trial it is for someone who's jumping out of a helicopter on a double black diamond that's been skiing their entire life. It's an equal challenge to the degree that you are needing to be challenged and move forward. God knows how to do it. He knows where we're at. And these, though they seem like very small trials to me in hindsight, at the time were very significant to my soul. The lack. In that first year of marriage, Barracks 28 was not yet named Barracks 28. Technically, we didn't have a name for it, but if we had, we certainly would have referred to it with nomenclature much more innocent and sweet. I was 24, Leslie was 19, we were young, innocent of much, struggling to understand things like insurance premiums and personal tax returns. We had been searching high and low for another place to live, but the $300 a month we were paying for our flea-infested lodge by the lake was hard to beat. I had a job, didn't pay a lot, but we had something. But a fixed income is exactly that, fixed. Our original budget included enough to rent this $300 place by the lake. We maybe had a $200 buffer each month, but those of you who are married know how likely a buffer is to still exist come the end of the month. Everything we looked at in the newspaper was out of our price range. The closest thing to our $300 current rent price was $550. So we went and checked the place out. It was situated next door to a known drug dealer in the area, and let's just say there was a reason why it was the cheapest place for rent in all of Kalamazoo, Michigan. There was no way I was going to leave my wife there every day while I was at work. The next best option came in around $700. It was small, but it was clean, so we snagged it up. We didn't technically have the money for it, but as a new husband, I had to do something to move us into a more viable living space. After all, a house full of raccoons and fleas is certainly fun, but not, the, not ideal for the long haul. This move to West Main Street was amazing for the two of us. Leslie fixed up the place the way Betsy fixed up Barracks 28. She made it heaven. Without a dime to spend, she somehow made it beautiful. It was ours, and it was without fleas. But this move to West Main Street also came with some new challenges. We had absolutely Zippo in the bank, in our pockets, or in our catch-all drawer in the kitchen. We used everything we had to make it through each day. Corey Tenboom used to tell the story of her vitamin bottle. While in the concentration camp, Corey somehow had a Bible and a vitamin bottle. These were her daily sustenance, and neither emptied throughout her entire time. As strange as it may sound, her vitamin bottle never emptied. Like the widow's oil, it never ran dry. 
20 years of marriage has shown me something very similar. In Barracks 28, I can testify that neither the truth of God's word nor the vitamin bottle have ever run out. But to say it was easy to have nothing in the bank nearly every day of our first year of marriage wouldn't be honest. It was extremely difficult. As a man, I yearned to supply richly for my new bride, to adorn her in jewels, and to ensure that she was clothed in the most posh clothing. But I simply couldn't do it. I was a romantic with a limp. I had big dreams, but God had given me something precious. He was teaching me how to give my wife something even better than earthly substance. I'll never forget the great test of 1995. Our friends were coming in from Colorado for a visit. It was the very first time any of our friends from Colorado had come for a visit since we got married back in December. It was a big deal. Somehow, we paid for the gas to and from Chicago to pick them up from the airport. We arrived back at our little condo and were filled with such excitement. They toured the place and we showed them the makeshift guest room. They asked for an ironing board to spruce up their clothes. We obliged. Everyone was smiling and then it happened. Leslie grabbed the hot iron to put it away, but it was still on. She burned her hand. It wasn't really a terrible burn, but it needed some ointment. We had $8 to our name. This was the money that we needed to carry us through this entire week with our guests. And our guests had no idea that we didn't have any way of feeding them. Without hesitation, I hopped into the car with my friend Ryan, and we headed off to the drugstore to pick up some burn medication. All $8 was spent on a singular bottle of ointment. Gulping, I hopped back into my red Camry and began to drive back to our snug little condo on West Main. On the trip home, a policeman noticed that my right front headlight was out and pulled me over. He gave me a ticket and said I wouldn't need to pay the $100 fine if I got the headlight fixed in this next week and had a policeman sign off that the work was done. Gulping, I started back up the car and drove home. Leslie and I clung to each other that night and prayed. It was a desperate form of praying. The fleas were a test, but this constant niggling ache of having nothing was an entirely different sort of trial for our marriage. But like the fleas that brought us together, Corey and Betsy used to share the same pillow in their Barracks 28 bunk. They didn't do this because it was more pleasant. They did it out of necessity. So tight were the women packed inside that building. Corey and Betsy's noses would often be touching throughout the night, and they shared each other's breath. This is our marriage. In many ways, you could call our marriage a shared pillow and a shared breath. In nights like this, Leslie and I learned to breathe our prayers in unison and often in tears. It was the following day that I picked up the mail. In the mailbox was a letter from Leslie's Aunt Pat. A financial surplus had come into her life and she wanted to share a bit of it with us. There was a check for $100 inside that envelope. Startled and bewildered by the timing of this strange gift, I held back the tears, walked through the living room, passed up my house guests, and found Leslie in the kitchen. I tapped her on the shoulder and silently pointed to the letter. I unfolded it for her to see the check. And together in the sacred silence of that moment, we shared the joys that only those that share a common pillow and a common breath can fully appreciate. Tears streamed down both our faces. That same day, our dear friends, the Staples, had invited us over for a barbecue. They wanted to meet our Colorado friends, and so with joy, we drove to their house in our red Camry. Doug Staples, the father, overheard some kerfuffle about Eric being pulled over last night by a policeman. He silently slipped out the door into his driveway and looked at my car. The next day, he went into town and bought the parts, and then called me up on the phone. Eric, Doug had said, it appears that I have the parts to fix your camera here at my house. Why don't you four come over for dinner again tonight, and I'll get things fixed up for you. 
Only God can turn empty pockets in an impossible situation into such a picture of his faithfulness. Lastly, we have shared a common pillow and a common breath for 20 years now. All I can say is thank you for allowing me so close. Thank you for breathing the breath of heaven alongside me. And thank you for being willing to live a life of dependence. I'm not a rich man in a material sense, but I've found that material riches is not the secret to lasting love and marital bliss, but that the secret is simply having Jesus. The paralysis. I'm a guy who likes to have things figured out before I do something. I'm not in the least bit impulsive. In fact, I think I've done three impulsive things in my life. Moving from Michigan back to Colorado at the close of our first year together presented yet another trial. Not having a lot of money had forced me to depend on others in the body of Christ for help and assistance. We had different pieces of furniture that we moved out with us from Colorado, but in the lakeside flea-infested lodge, we certainly didn't need furniture. And then in the tiny condo, we certainly didn't need much furniture. So instead of sticking these pieces away in a storage unit, our furniture was strewn about southwestern Michigan in three different locations. So when it came to packing up our stuff and moving, the task was a big one. I wanted to do all this in an organized fashion. After all, my name is Eric Ludi, and I like to have things figured out ahead of time. But in this situation, like the fleas and the empty pockets that preceded it, Eric did not have a lot of options but to trust God. The problem is I didn't trust God in this situation. I don't think that I even considered asking God for help. My strength has always been systems, processes, and organization. So I took it upon myself to try and solve the situation. I rented a rider truck, emptied my pockets once again, We had just enough to pay for the necessary fuel, one hotel stay and I went a few snacks along the journey. It was going to be tight, but I could do it. We did make it back to Colorado, but not without casualty. The casualty was inside of me. After that trip, I lost my joy. I had always been the smiler, the happiest man anyone had ever met, but something in this trial broke me down. I had survived the fleas, I would survived the empty pockets, and so you would think that I could have also survived the rider truck packing experience, but I didn't. After stressing, complaining, tying down, rushing, breaking, muttering, and generally making a fool of myself, I finally closed the door to the rider truck and locked it. I leaned against the side of the truck and sighed. I was frustrated. I was even mad. Mad at what? I'm not sure but I could have, that I could have told you. But in my opinion, things shouldn't be that difficult. Difficulty to me was still a negative idea. It was a dark specter and something to be feared. And as, I, and as a result, I fought it. I kicked at it. I complained. And like the stiff-necked Israelites in the wilderness, I was making a bad decision. After I had crammed everything we owned into that truck and let out a heavy sigh, I ventured back into the house to see Leslie. As I opened the front door of our condo, I saw it. If my gaze had been a movie camera, it would have zoomed in on it with ominous music playing in the background. It was my barbecue grill, just sitting there on my back porch. I gave in. Anxiety had been knocking all day long, begging to come in and take over my life. And well, after that miserable day, I guess I felt obliged to say yes. And it came in. It came in and nearly destroyed my life. I collapsed onto the floor, unable to function. I lie there motionless, strangely paralyzed. Leslie came running over to me, yearning to know if I were all right, but I couldn't speak. I couldn't do anything. This proved to be a multi-year lesson for my soul. At the time, I didn't understand what I had done. I didn't realize that I'd yielded to the operation of anxiety in my life. I just thought that that must be the result of dealing with such difficulties. For the next four years, I was followed by this paralyzing power to the point that I actually ended up in the hospital at the age of 28. Lastly, I'm so embarrassed to think about how poor of a protector I was in that season. I allowed in that terrible power of anxiety into our home and the unnecessary pains that brought to your unsuspecting soul are too many to count. But you, my dear wife, have never once scolded me for those years. But instead, you tenderly and lovingly lovingly stood by me as God taught me how to be a man. And how precious are those lessons. 
for now at the age of 44, I'm 47 now, I can stand up and declare that anxiety has no place in my life, in our marriage, or in our ministry. The weights that we carry 19 years after the fact are a thousand times heavier, and yet through those difficulties, God has taught us the great power of leaping for joy when the downward pressures of life strike. The stand. It may sound strange that while I was struggling with anxiety, that Leslie and I were traveling the world speaking boldly about Jesus Christ. But it's true. I've always been a work in process, and I'm fairly certain I always will be. The fact that God uses unfinished business like us is one of the most startling aspects to the Christian life. All this traveling the world started with a book. In fact, our first book was written during the flea infestation next to the lake. In three weeks, while raccoons pawed and fleas hopped about on our white socks, Leslie and I wrote down our love story. People everywhere all over the world wanted to hear our story, and to be quite frank, we weren't actually that interested in talking about it. Not because we didn't think our love story was special, but because it was such an intimate and sacred thing to us that we didn't want it to ever lose its specialness. So we wrote it down, and we decided that the next time someone asked us to share, we would stick a little book under their nose and say, you can read this. It worked for a while, and then it backfired. A publisher got a hold of that little book and gave us a call. I'll never forget that phone call. I think this message needs to go around the world, he had stated. Would you consider allowing me to publish this amazing story? Many times since, we have wondered if we made the right decision in saying yes. For that one singular yes has been the source of 90% of the difficulties we have faced over the years. However, that one singular yes has also supplied us 90% of the kindling needed to stoke the fires of our precious marriage. Corey Tenboom's sufferings in Barracks 28 gave her a message to share with the world of Christ's great love, even in the darkest places. Writing down our love story has given us the ability to know what Corey learned in Barracks 28 and to recognize Christ's great love. It was around September of our first year of marriage that the invitations began to come in. They started with, started with a trickle, and then, it, and then that trickle turned into a flood. We had absolutely no interest in traveling around and talking about love and relationships, but our personal feelings on the matter didn't seem to have much weight. God had his hand pressing against the small of our backs, and so we began to speak. Our first international tour happened in the summer months of 1996. We headed to Australia. The interest there was big, and a 20-stop tour was quickly put together by a Christian leader who had heard us speak at a family conference in Colorado. The fleas, the empty pockets, and the rider truck tobacco were small trials next to the size of the test we faced in this trip to Australia. Australia itself was beautiful, and the people were lovely. The trial came in a new form to us. It was a spiritual battle unbeknownst to us before. Truth seemed lost inside the church, and every stop along the tour there seemed to be a spiritual void. There was talk of revival everywhere we went, but it was not the sort of revival that Leslie and I had prayed for daily. You know, the kind where humble understanding of our, spiritual, our sinful condition leads to repentance, and repentance leads to the seeking of forgiveness and restoration. This particular revival sweeping through Australia in the summer of 1996 was called a laughing revival. In this bizarre revival, people would laugh. They would bark like dogs, roar like lions, even slither like snakes. I was utterly bewildered. Don't get me wrong, I love to laugh, but this was strange and bizarre, and we had, ne- had near 20 stops in which this behavior was a very real thing. I was 25 years old, Leslie was 20, and we were about to face the greatest test of our young lives. As a 44-year-old pastor, standing strong for the truth is not as much of a surprise, but when you are 25 in a foreign culture, to stand strong for the truth against the prevailing system is nearly impossible. But we had no choice. On one of our first stops of the tour, we ran into this strange phenomenon. The pastor sat us down and informed us of the mighty movement sweeping through his church. He was ecstatic. He assumed I would be equally delighted. I truly wanted to be, but I was at odds inwardly. I grew up with the simple reason that the Bible is the only way to determine right from wrong, light from dark, true from false, and spirit from flesh. And no matter how much I wanted just to agree with this laughing revival, in my young conscience, I couldn't. 
Les and I found ourselves bracing for a storm. She looked at me, I looked at her. We both knew that Jesus comes first. Financially speaking, we desperately needed to sell all the boxes of books we had shipped down to Australia. If we chose to speak on something other than relationships, then we certainly would not sell any books on the theme of relationships. The pastor had said to me earlier that day that the last 28 times someone had spoken in this pulpit, revival had broken out. He was such a sincere man. I ached within as I listened to him. I just wanted to be quiet. I just wanted to be the guy that all the Australians loved. Leslie and I together decided that we needed to speak. The knot in my stomach made me feel like I had swallowed a pine hole. I got up to speak that day in Brisbane. I was the 29th orator to address this expectant crowd. The 28th before me had all stimulated a great response, a response so big, mind you, that this church was being covered in the national news. The pressure on me was enough to nearly crush me. My knees were knocking, my palms were sweaty, and I had a gigantic lump in my throat. I spoke on true revival. No one appreciated the irony, and ironically, no one laughed. In fact, no one said anything. Everyone just sat there stone silent. I saw Leslie out. I saw Leslie out there as I spoke. That one cherished island of support nearly lost in the vast sea of stone-faced humanity. I gave my all. I spoke with love, with fervor, with concern, but there were no amens and no hallelujahs. No one moved, no one did anything. I don't know what caused me to do what I did next, but I told the silent audience that I was done, but God was not done. There were those in the crowd who needed to make things right with the body. There was sin in that church, and I told them I was going to set down the microphone on the top step of the stage and invite them to come forward and confess their sin one unto another. Even as I was doing it, I couldn't believe I was doing it. I set down the microphone and walked past the stoic crowd and sat down in the very back of the church. What followed was the longest 10 minutes of my life. I had a demon hovering overhead screaming at me about how stupid I was. The demon kept shouting, no one is laughing. You have ruined what God was doing here in this church. I sat there and sweated as it were, great drops of blood, not really, but at least I took one forward step in understanding Gethsemane. After 10 minutes of complete silence, a girl arose from her seat and came forward. She grabbed the microphone, then immediately began to sob. She cried and sought forgiveness from her father, who was there in the crowd, for showing public disrespect towards him. The father came forward and hugged his daughter, and there wasn't a dry eye in the entire room. Suddenly, the floodgates opened, and a line began to form around the church with men and women yearning to confess, to make things right, and to establish truth in their inner life. Over two hours later, the line was still long, and a woman arrived at the front and said that she had actually left when I first set down the microphone, but she told God that this was still going in two hours, and she would speak. It was still going, and she spoke. Less than I witnessed this power of truth reverberate through Australia. Everywhere we went, we followed the laughing revival, and time and time again, God would move me to stand for truth in the midst of a misled church. Leslie died a thousand deaths. <laughs> Leslie died a thousand deaths in that 20-stop tour. The amount of embarrassment from... <laughs> the amount of embarrassment from being married to me. would have sunk most women.
Leslie realized in that tour that she is married to a strange sort of character. But you know, one of my favorite things about Leslie, she doesn't want to be normal. And so technically, when I get up onto a stage and say something that might not be politically or religiously correct, it's not Eric, all by his lonesome, saying something kooky. It's actually Eric and Leslie saying something kooky together. Remember, we share the same pillow, the same breath. Leslie, I am the man that I am, and I'm bold to speak the things I speak because I have you behind me pushing so hard. Thank you for putting your shoulder into it, and thank you for standing with me and not running away when I read my public floggings. <sighs> Sorry, guys. I, I know that this is deep in me. There's just something about the remembrance of these things that touches me at a very deep level, and as far as I know, you guys could be out here going, what in the world is that guy doing up there? Technically, to me, the really wonderful thing about what God has done in me is I don't put too much weight on your opinions, even though I care. When I feel led to share something, I just do. And even if it didn't resonate, it's probably still sharing. God's doing something deep in me. And this morning, it is a fresh reminder of the preciousness of what he has invested in my life. And that doesn't just stop with Leslie. And it doesn't just go to my kids, which flows right out of this but it also goes to you guys. In other words, in a strange sense, I feel like you guys have shared a, not the same pillow in the same way Leslie has, but you've shared a, a similar identification with the guy on this stage, and in many ways you've suffered along with me. It means a lot to me. We've talked over these past weeks, I don't know how many it's been, five or six, about reaping. And in other words, what is a revival to most people is a bringing in of a harvest. In other words, we go through micro awakenings in our soul a lot as Christians. But when God does something in a body, it actually changes culture. It changes nations at times. And what is happening is it's not just people are hearing about truth. They are being converted to it. They are changing their life. And so I'm going to call that reaping life. You see, when there is a, a recognition of truth in our individual life and we embrace Jesus Christ, you see, when you embrace Jesus, you're embracing a cross too. There's some slivers in that. Wow, I didn't know what I was getting when I signed up for this. You see, my desire is that you know full well what you are getting when you sign up with Jesus. When you enter into covenant with Jesus, I want you to count the cost. And it might even sound like I'm trying to scare you off at times. You do recognize that this means your life. You do recognize he gave everything for you, and now you give everything for him. You're becoming a bond slave to the living God. You do recognize your ear will be pierced, and whatever he asks of you, your answer before he even makes the request is, yes, Lord. You do know that, don't you? When you embrace the challenge that comes with Christianity, I tell you what, it works in your life as a catalyst towards greater life. So 2 Corinthians, Paul talking, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. You know, that's, that's our individual lives as Christians. That's our, individual, that's our marriages. That's our families. When we walk a narrow way, we bear something. And it, it can be difficult. And sometimes you look over at the fence, you know, at the 
A classic name is the Joneses, but since we may have a Jones in here, I'm not going to call it that. It's the family next door that seems to have a greener lawn. And for whatever reason, they don't struggle with the same things you do. It's like they always seem to have money. They're always fixing up their house. They're always doing something. They just got a better car, and they already had a nice car. It's like, what is that? Why is it that that family next door doesn't seem to have the same trials that we have? You see, when we sign up for this narrow way, we inherit the challenges that, fa- that the Spirit of Christ endures, that our Messiah Jesus endured when he was here on this earth. We are sharing in that suffering. You know, we, can try, we can get out of it by you know, saying, hey, I'm not with him. I'm not with him, and try to escape out of those trials, but we also miss the life that comes forth. Because listen to this. It's not just half a sentence, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. I can identify with that. Maybe you can too, but can you identify with the second half of this? That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. I know there's a lot of dying going on. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hurt that comes with walking a narrow way. But do you know what that breeds? Life. That brings strength. The laws of farming. We've been talking about this for quite some time. You want to bring forth a crop? Well, there's laws to that. You need to till the soil. You need to plant the seed. You need to water that. You need to weed it, and you need to wait. You need to, and while you're doing that, you're continuing to weed, you're continuing to water, and you're continuing to wait. You will reap a harvest. So you want to reap life. There's certain things that are of the utmost importance. Let's agree with God. You see, when God brings up the topic of difficulty, most of us shrink back. You read the New Testament, and God is not mincing words. He says, I know that you're sheep among wolves. I recognize that. And he doesn't make an excuse for it and say, I'm just so sorry. I'm so sorry. I I should have built this whole system called Christianity a lot better. No, he was a sheep among wolves too. You see, he has sent us just as he was sent. And there's something about the glory of God that is made manifest in and through us walking through difficulty that will not be manifest any other way. So we desire this world to see Jesus. We desire the abundant life. Well, then we need to accept difficulty. And you might as well accept it when you're embracing it. Embrace it cheerfully. There is no reason why you just need to mentally go, okay, I accept it, and then go down into the dumps. I'm not just asking you to give a mental flip to say, okay, all right, yeah, I guess that comes with the package. Boy, that stinks. But to actually say, God, this is a privilege. I have the opportunity to grow strong, and to bear life out of me, to share the glory of Jesus. If you knew how precious my marriage was, even after reading that, and if we kept going in the book, you'd be like, whoa. Oh, it gets, oh, a thousand times more intense with what starts coming at us. It's not what I'm going into today. I'm just setting the stage. You see, we all start with the very first things. We all start with fleas. And how we respond to the fleas is going to set a trajectory in place. I spent the first few years of our marriage complaining. And I ended up in the hospital at the age of 28 with a stress disorder. Because I wanted to follow Jesus radically, and I was. I was standing for him. Even in the harshest situations, I found myself rising up and everyone sitting. And it was hard. But then when the church was complaining and they were criticizing me, I complained to God. God, what is this? Why is it that people aren't supporting? Don't they want to hear truth? And he starts reminding me of his life. 
He's like, Eric, you know, I'm the creator who came to this earth and bore one of your bodies, and you just watch how I was treated. What are you expecting? In other words, didn't you read the New Testament? Yeah, I've read the New Testament. I just thought that was for the early church. I thought we were, we're American Christians. American Christians can be comfortable, I think. Maybe not. In other words, I had to recalibrate my thinking. When you grow up here, I'm not just saying in Windsor at church at Ellerslie. When you grow up in America, you think you are entitled to comfort, to ease, to privilege, to painless living. When in actuality, you have signed up to live as a pilgrim passing through. You're a citizen of another country. First and foremost, you're a citizen of heaven. And so therefore, you live and abide by his code, which is you will be sent forth as my son was sent forth. You will be sheep among wolves. And they will attempt to kill you. But no matter what trial you face, I will give you a consolation. I will give you a grace. And I will turn it. I will convert it into even a greater strength. So you can rejoice the whole time. Because no matter what the enemy brings against you, you get stronger. No matter how high the intensity is, God's intensity, his grace given to you increases even beyond that. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall reap, shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. That's good farmer terminology right there. If you're sowing the wrong stuff into your soil, you're going to reap the wrong stuff. But if you start sowing the right stuff, the truth, if you start embracing the truth, even when it's challenging, even when it cuts, even when it's difficult, it's amazing. But what comes forth is life. It's the laws of farming. You want to be strong in your Christian life. You can't just sit and listen to sermons. You have to do what you hear in the sermons. We have a propensity in our country You need to know it in yourself. To hear, to hear, to hear, and not do. And to think that you're doing because you heard. But hearing and doing are two very different things. There's nothing wrong with hearing. It's just that you are hearing in order to do. We need to be an activated church. And so if you find yourself still staring up at the stage, thinking that is a well-stated truth, I don't mind if God wants to make me fumble and bumble and sob up here. It doesn't matter to me if it comes out clearly and eloquent. If you get it. If you get the idea of what it means to give everything to Jesus Christ. And to say, I, I do not want to just live as I am and complain and grumble. I want to live as he is, as he desires me to live. God, what must I do to be saved? God, I do not want to live a mediocre Christian life with great doctrine. I want to have a living doctrine, the kind of life that lives Christ. That when people see me, they see Jesus. They see me face trials and they watch. And what do they see? They see a smile crease my face and a skip in my step. And they go, what is that? When the Christians in the early centuries were fed to wild beasts, they would sing. Some would even run to the wild beasts. What is that? Some would anticipate, sort of like, my time has finally come. The salvation has finally come. I get to go home. They longed for it. It was, 
It was their way of paying tribute to the God who gave up his life for them. God, it is the greatest privilege that I could give up my life to you. Cuckoo? No, Christian. The two sometimes seem very similar. (laughs) Barracks 28, which by the way, just because I named my marriage Barracks 28, I don't want you to feel awkward in the fact that that's just Christianity. We're all Barracks 28. That's that's what we are. Now, you can come up with your own title for it. I'm I'm not going to say that every one of our marriages should be called Barracks 28. You know, it's honey... Honey, and then you wink across the church, and you're like, Barracks 28. And then less than sort of awkward there. It's like, uh uh-huh. You can come up with your own name. I know naming marriages is not the most normal thing, but hey, I think it's a great idea. So you can get that out of this message. It's like, hey, honey, I think we should name our marriage. We name our kids, you know, hey. So Barracks 28 plus plus a cheerful embrace equals Barracks 29. It's interesting because Hudson is born on the 29th. Harper's born on the 29th. What has come out of this is so precious to us. Any of you that have kids, how do you describe your kids? I mean, I'm having trouble reading about my wife. If we had statements about my kids up here, I would just, I, I, I'd just be on lockdown. The depth of feeling and affection that stirs within Eric Ludi because of what God has brought into my life. Have I suffered in this body? Yeah, I have. Not unto death, not unto the shedding of blood, but I've suffered. And yet, do I have anything to complain about? Come on. I mean, you should put me out of my misery and just get me out of this world if I'm going to complain. I have everything. As far as I'm concerned, I have the greatest life on earth. And I don't mind you trying to argue with me, but as far as I'm concerned, even with the difficulties, God has given me a reward for my suffering. He has given me a consolation, which I'm going to call Barracks 29. In other words, it's that which comes out. And guess what? What my kids are learning, they get to share in the kookiness of their father too. And yet, what do they learn? They begin to understand the joy and the beauty that comes with living in a barracks. In other words, I want my kids growing up, and I want them to want to name their barracks, you know, their marriage Barracks 30. I don't... I'm not going to force them to do that. Kids, you don't have to do that. In other words, I want them to think this way. Barracks 29 is the reward of suffering. If we embrace Barracks 28 living, which is symbolic, I know that that's the name of my marriage. However, it's symbolic for all of us. If we embrace the sort of living that brings challenges, that brings difficulties, and we are willing to embrace it, if we embrace Barracks 28 living, then we will receive Barracks 29 children. Now, you could look at that as, you know, Hudson, Harper, Kipling, Avi, Lily Reese. You could. However, I want you to think bigger. I want you to think of a church. What do we long for? We long to produce fruit as believers. We long for the lost to be saved and to be brought in. This is one of the secrets. We embrace the challenge. We embrace the difficulties. You see, the world, I mean, it's always been the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You see, when we suffer, God uses that. The Holy Spirit works through our difficulty, our right handling of challenge to actually bring about salvation in others. Hey, I'm just saying, that's, that's what it's always, how it's always worked throughout Christian history. So we will receive Barak's 29 children. All, I mean, it, it's a deep ache inside of me that my children 
my kiddos would not just know Jesus, but that they would be willing to go to the utter lengths to serve him. I love the story of Betsy and Corey because I see Casper Tenboom, their father, and the house that he set up. He set up a house that was willing. He was, you know that when he was arrested, their, their whole family was arrested. The father died only, a, I mean, what, a week or two later in prison because he housed Jews uh, during the Holocaust. And he's a, he was an old man, and the police said, uh, old man, you can stay here just as long as you promise you won't take, any more, take in any more Jews. He says, I cannot give you that promise. If a Jew comes to this door, I'll take him in. So they took him to prison, and he died. Okay, I want what that guy has. I do, even though he's watching his children be carted away because of his willingness to stand for the truth of Jesus in a generation. Whatever Casper Tenboom has, and then I listen to Corey Tenboom and the admiration she has for her father, the way she speaks of her father, all I can say, what burns inside of me is, I want to be that. I want to be that to my kids. But technically, that's the way we all are. There's what I'm describing is we want to live this thing, right? Where the, those that follow us have something to model. They're looking at something that they say, that, right there. And I don't want my children just to have to read biographies. I want them to see something in my life that says, that. And even if I die in a prison, that they carry on that legacy, that passion and that heat, that love, that thankfulness for fleas. Seeing the vitamin bottle never run dry. I want to see them live that Barracks 28 life. We will gain a reward that cannot be taken from us. We will reap a harvest. We will see our children walking in the Lord. So in Proverbs 22, I know many of you have heard this, but I'm going to say it in this context. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. As a father, I look at this in many different ways. This is also a pastor's proverb as well. In other words, you desire, you ache for those that you are put over. You have an anointing for that. A grace is given to you of care, of affection for those that are under you. And you oftentimes feel very vulnerable to having all the seeds that are planted be blown away by the wind. And as parents in our modern day, you could easily feel that. However, if we're willing to live Barak's 28 lives, we will get Barak's 29 children. It is the consolation. It is the reward. It is the tree of life. It is the life that we reap. In other words, it is the natural result just as a crop comes out of soil that a farmer has tended to properly. Children will grow up mature and God-fearing when we do first things first. If we're willing to live Barak's 28 lives, well, then you get Barak's 29 children. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So this is just a little quote to finish from uh, Barak's 28. What is it? Oh, it's not, not there. It's, I want to say it's at the very end, the final chapter, which is like chapter 18. Or so. We truly are the happiest family on earth. And it is because we have chosen the cross as our home. 
We left everything and came to that crazy place where people still hope. We were invited in by our beloved Jesus and now share in the extraordinary beauty of that place of victory. Barracks 28 is simply the looty way of saying, we live in the place where death has made life, where slurs are made encouragement, where pains are made comfort, where nails are made strength, and where loss has made gain. Uh, Leslie. You are an amazing woman, and it is a great privilege to serve alongside of you, to parent alongside of you. I desire more than anything to be a man that honors you in every moment, and not just honors you on a day like this. I want to be a man that is consistently showing Christ in every regard as you have shown Christ to me so consistently. One of my passions is what I call raising William Wallace. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that message. But I was thinking about it today because that's Aaron Vogel's passion. And here he has this little boy today uh, named Ezekiel. Uh, I mean, Ezekiel? Boy, what a, what a name to give a a little child, by the way, if you know Ezekiel's life. That guy lived in the midst of difficulty. The, the people of Israel have gone south, uh, and the, the Judah is in bondage, and they're in their season under, in captivity. That's when that's happening. It's in a season of difficulty that Ezekiel is called on, and he's willing to stand up and speak something that's going to get him in big-time trouble. That, some, that people don't want to hear. God has an ache, but he needs a man who's willing to speak it. And this idea of raising children, we could say raising a church, but raising children, it's a very specific burden for many of us in here, that aren't just good kids. You know what I mean by that? Good kids. It's like, well, you know, and then people come up, your kids are really well-behaved. You know, I really respect how they sit still in church and, you know, they seem to have really good manners. You know, they say, yes, sir. I'm not against that at all. All for it. However, it's something beyond that. It's not just great kids. It's kids that change the world in which they live. And if that resonates inside of you, all I can say is it's deep within me. And that's why I think it's, it's really neat that... Uh, Aaron has Ezekiel today because that's, a, that's one of the burdens we share. We talk about it a lot. That longing to not just raise boys, because when you say raising William Wallace, it's sort of like, yeah, the girls, eh, we don't care about them. The exact opposite is true. Whatever you want to say, raising Corey Tenbooms. In other words, we want to impart in such a way where that which is in us gets into them. And then, truly, honestly, expands in them even beyond what it is in us. Less than I've always referred to it as being a stepping stone. In other words, I want to be the sort of life where our kids can launch from and go even further. I don't want to make it easy for my kids to go further than me. In other words, I want them to compete with everything in them to say, I want to outpace my dad in pursuing Jesus. I like that sort of thing. I like competition. But I want to set them up to win. I want to set them up to go beyond 
we, I, I don't know exactly how you would translate a message like this. However, in your life, I want you to exercise whatever soul muscle that is of thankfulness and appreciation. You have something very precious around you. And for some of you, you might have been complaining about fleas. You might have been grumbling instead of thanking him. Today, I want you to deliberately choose to change your mentality towards difficulty. It is a decision. I remember when I made that decision and I began to rejoice. It didn't come naturally to me. There was still a pull of grumble, but I had to deliberately say no to that and say, God, even though my mind is a blur right now, I know what you say in your word. And then as I kept doing that, as I kept turning, turning, turning from the complaint unto the promise, unto the word of God, pretty soon it began to be my first turn. So instead of a grumble being my first emotion, it began to be the rejoicing. It's like, huh, this is going to be good. That doesn't happen overnight, but it needs to start within each of us where we deliberately begin to turn away from that downcast mentality. Command your soul to leap. God will take even this and convert it into a picture of his glory. God will take even this and make you more muscular as a Christian. God will take this and even make your marriage more beautiful. And at times, you know, you guys might be in a challenge in a marriage, you're thinking, no way, there's no way that could. You allow God to do it and you'll find out. God will take even this. If you ever have one of those crises in your, in your family with one of your children and it just seems like all hope is lost, that's, that's the feeling many of us parents have. God will take even this and leverage it even into a greater gain for Jesus Christ in their soul. You see, we live with a God who converts difficulty into consolation, into a reward. Let's let him do it. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.